You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chuck. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now, please enjoy Heart of the Hunter. Chapter 16 The muster bell rang loud and clear through the murk guild halls and out onto the street of the swords, waking up soldiers in flophouses and taverns three or four doors down. The sound permeated the hexagonal building, followed by a cry. All three floors heard it clear. That was how the place was designed, after all. In the drinking canteen, mercenaries paused to note the announcement following the bell. Hoskins! Hoskins of regulars muster! came the cry. Tagons welcome! Meet at the north door! Lots of work, warriors! Lots of work here! Upstairs, soldiers of nearly every heritage, rank or age, rolled out of their billets and stumbled down the hall to the sluice to wash the sleep grit and barracks stink off of them. Responding to street boy messengers that rattled the door of every brothel on the street of the Red Lanterns, Hoskins' irregular soldiers began arriving in carriages, pulling up to the East Hall entrance of the guildhouse. Outside it looked like the premiere of one of the new body plays of Varric, not an ordinary day at the guild. The irregulars, so often impugned for their odd force composition and even odder leader, the Major, went about like princes now. They were settling debts, hastily checking in at the member's desk to get their mail before they mustered, spot-checking each other for worthiness. As a result, along the South Hall, Hubrick, the Simples seller, was making a pretty penny on redberry juice, cold slap tea, and other medicinals. The pretty boys and girls who liked to lounge around the founder's fountain, hoping for a soldier to spend some pay on them for an hour or two, were seen to be passing out soft embraces and kissing farewells in exchange for promises that hazard pay would be theirs upon the soldier's return. Across the way from the fountain in the temple corner, coins plinked one after the other into the collection box for Besar, Lord of Luck, the one religion that nearly every soldier paid some kind of lip service to. As each one rubbed the squat, grinning bearded god's tummy for luck. Priests of the Sword Queen, Lothus, stood and blessed blades proffered to them, for a reasonable donation, of course. In the West Hall, shootists were retrieving their Dracon pistols from the gunsmith, admiring how clean they were, touching the charge stone to see the full-charge purple glow. Warriors were picking up their blades, freshly polished and with a renewed edge, from the sharpener, a Sidalian man whose hands always seemed to be wrapped in bandages. Rumor had it that this day would come, 
but it still caught a few unaware. Although Hoskins Irregulars wasn't a very large company, it was well known to the veterans and the mercs, and tag-on work, the request for extra soldiers to be signed up on the spot, regardless of what company they were in, meant that someone was freely spending coin. Rumor got through the crowd fairly quickly that the Prester concern was involved and that the purse strings had loosened. The line to sign up was long at the north door and the Master Chief Hornboot was there evaluating the tagons. Name, he said to the next man in front of him, a rat man with a civvy, nail-tongued hyena man partner. Name's Sneeve. This here's my partner, Leonard. We're a team. Five-star rating. Not bad. Say, haven't I seen you over in the butcher's block? Don't you have a shop somewhere? Ah, uh, yeah. As of that, I've had to shut my doors of late. The River Road, you know. Ah, yes. Hard to stay in business, eh? All right, Sneeve. Your membership's in order. Put your chop here. Does your, uh, friend sign his name? I'll be glad to sign for him. He isn't kind to Quillpins. The Master Chief nodded and accepted the man's X for Leonard. You two report to Crossways downstairs. Crossways. Gotcha, Master Chief, Sneep said, grinning, and moved off with his giant friend. The next recruit in line, a Yarian Greenhorn, croaked as he stepped up. Crossway, sir? Why the Trigates? Sorry, soldier, the old man's in a hurry to get where we're going. If that's a problem, move on. I ain't got all day. The Greenhorn nodded curtly and turned and slunk away. Next, Master Chief cried, eyeing a time stone that was pulsing on the desk. Let's get a move on, soldiers. Finally, a dark-haired lunar gentleman in a weather-beaten cloak stepped forward to sign up. A silver cloak pin in the shape of a tree hung on the cloak he wore. You'll find I have no problem with such transport, Master Chief. Where do I sign? he said. Aaron stood on the outside of the green bower wagon, quietly wondering whether he should just leave. His mother and the other women of the tribe would look unkindly upon him should he just break privacy and open the door. On the other hand, he wanted to know if his love was all right. He leaned against a tree and breathed in raggedly. You should not be here, Aaronin. His mother's voice came from behind him. Go back to your camp. Mother, you should allow our healer to look at her, and at father. You know our ways are not the Gahe's ways. To accept healing from his god, that would be vain. Mother, I have seen the healing Brother Alabar brings. He is a true healer, not a charlatan. I... This is not a decision for me to make, Arinen, and your father is hurt very badly. Arin considered and nodded softly. I understand, mother. 
Arin, I would not ask you, never ask you, to violate your agreements. There are many others who can take my place, Mamza, if Papiz leaves us. He has said so many times. He is a vain and arrogant man, a prideful, stubborn man, like his son. The words he spoke were in anger, true. Now softer words come to you. Will you take up your place among us? I cannot leave my company, Mamza. I would... Once we're through to the Iron Town. Iron Town! So far! You go nearly to Heartstopper's breath in the wastes! It is the oath of the road, Mamza. I have sworn it. I would not break that oath and bring mail on my name and us all. She turned away. I didn't know. If you have sworn such an oath, then I... I have no choice. For if you will not take up your place here, I have no recourse but to threaten your father's feta with your gahe healing. His soul is far too valiant to be tainted long, Mamza. He is a true Velisti. As are you, my son. Let us hope that that is enough to protect him. And Corin, will you let her be healed as well? I will think on this. I hope my son's solicitation is based on the simple concern of one wound for another. It is more than that, and you know it, Mamza. My heart belongs to Corin. She was felled in the camp of your Gahe's sergeant, Arinin. Do you think she may have offered him the Tantaliza? The private dance? Never. She is a pure maiden. She would never damage her feta that way. As you say, Arinin, as you say. But for now, do you go and get your priest? And let us heal, puppies. I will, mother. Thank you. Arriving shortly after Arin's summons, Alabar quickly tended to Papiz, who slept through the healing and still slept after. Then he turned his attentions to Corinne. There, that should do it, Alabar said, lifting his hand off of the wound in Corinne's leg. What do you think, Mausolaine? You are a great healer, true, brother. I have yet to see the like among the Laylors. What you did for Papiz... You stopped his fever, closed his wounds. This alone was miraculous. Then you heal Corinne, and suddenly she has color back in her cheeks. You have the true gift. It reminds me a great deal of mine own Mamza. Truly, I thank you. She must have been a wonderful woman. A fluff skirt, a flirt, and a drunk, I'm afraid. But she was a true healer at the Valisti. Ah. I see. Well, thank you again, Mom's Elaine. Corinne, do you feel a lot better now? Yawning deeply, nodding and rubbing the same place again and again, Corinne sat up. Where has it been that a man has touched me quite in that place, Brother Alabar? Good it is that you are both gahe and sworn to the cloth, or mayhaps people might question my honor. Alabar bowed, flushing fiercely. May the light bless you and keep you, Corinne. 
Now, if you'll excuse me, I must go see to my crew. Of course, brother. Thank you again, Mamza said, pressing a copper ring into his hand. What's this? Albar said, taking the ring and peering at it. Just a present. Just something small. Do not think a thing of it. But I don't... I know that you said the brothers of your order do not charge for healing, but I cannot let the flow be unbalanced between us. I cannot repay you for what you have done, but I can make a gift. It is my small offering. Please, brother, please take it. Very well, Manza, but I would not dishonor you or your generous gift. Thank you again. Farewell, brother. The ring slid into a pocket of his robe as he left the wagon. When the door was shut, Corin turned to Mamza Lane. Well? Mamza, I need to ask you something. And I come to you as a daughter of the Varana. Please, hear my plea. She turned and looked Corin in the eye. Very well, then. Tell me. I am listening. And then Corin began to ask her question. Arun was beginning to feel like his pavilion was not his own, and yet there was something homey about having a woman in his tent. It had been a while. In respect, Arun pitched his voice softly as he came in. How are you feeling? Chandra lay sprawled across a nest of pillows, covered in sleeping furs. Well enough, I have to thank you, Arin, she said, sitting up. What you did, coming after me. I don't understand it, but I am grateful. It was my honor to serve, my lady. Arun said. Do you have aught in the way of effects from your magical exertions today? I don't... Well... You know my people dislike magic, don't you? I am aware that the Yarians are frequently limited in their beliefs this way. I don't feel as bad as I usually do after using the fire. Before today, whenever I used it, either to protect my home or to start a fire in the hearth, it always brought with it pain, a sense of loss or exhaustion, of sin. Today, though, I feel fine. In fact, if anything, I feel better than I did. The Brother Alivar is an excellent teacher. What does that mean? Chandra, when you use energy, it uses you. If you do not properly go about it, you will find that you are on the bad end of the bargain. Magic always has its cost, but with skill and practice, you can minimize the cost. The steps he led you through, the grounding, the centering, that was all for your benefit. I see. There's so much that I don't know. Brother Alabar says that all power eventually comes from the light. Do you believe that? I believe that if one has gifts, one should use them. That is something that was hard won for me. I have, well, sometimes it's a curse, sometimes a blessing. <laughs> 
the sight. How does it manifest? Sometimes I can see that which is or was, sometimes even that which will be. It is a gift of my Felisti blood. You see these things as if they were real, there in front of you? I have to find the middle spaces, the shadows, the places in between to look. And then the visions come to me. They rarely, if ever, come unbidden. I see. And you... You saw how father died that way? That I did. How did he die? As I told you when we first met, he was killed by nail tongues, most likely by the same war band that attacked my people while I was away. Apparently, Ulin has been patrolling this land as if it were her own. Chandra nodded. I thought... I thought he was just away, just delayed, that he would return. We should have left last year, but he thought to wait out the winter. We had enough supplies in the stone house. It was not difficult to convince the nail tongues to leave us be. But when the snows melted, he had to go for supplies. He wanted to take me with him, but I refused, because I knew that would mean we would lose all that we had gained. I didn't think it would take so long for him to come back. And then it was too late. She collapsed into tears of bitter grief, and Arryn drew her into an embrace. Wrapping his arms around her, he held her softly in the dim light of his tent, and her tears stained his threadbare silk shirt. A few breaths later, she was pushing him away, gently, but still insistently. Don't, she whispered. I'm sorry. You needn't explain, Gahelina. I will leave you now. Thank you. I'm sorry. He bowed as best he could inside his pavilion, turned quietly, and left. She cried silently for a while, but was soon exhausted. Curling up in the pillows, Chandra lost herself in their softness and their exotic fragrance. The scent was both strange and somehow comforting, and it stirred a sweet feeling deep within her that counterbalanced her grief and loss. It wasn't until much later that she realized that that scent was Aaron's. The swamp was alive. Ulin felt it breathe through her. She an instrument of the swamp as much as the swamp was an instrument of her power. It had survived the cold, bitter winds of winter, survived the life-killing cold, survived to meet the sweet rains of spring, and it was burgeoning, ever pregnant and fiercely fecund. The swamp gave birth to nearly every form of life. Uline felt that life blossoming, blooming, exploding all around her. Larvae metamorphed into adulthood, eggs hatched, the corpses of the fallen, 
turned into the nurseries of the many-legged. Sitting on her cypress throne, Uline reached out taloned hands to take the reins of such new power, to feel the taproot of the swamp. It was exhilarating to be seated there and to be the center of so many thousands of strands, to be the focus of the web of life. The fire that had been burning off to her left, off to the south and west, was minimal or gone now. She wondered at that. Perhaps the new green growth was too wet to catch from the spring rains. She was inwardly pleased because she did not wish to have to combat a fire that surrounded her. The swamp would be a long time before it caught fire, but once the boiling gases in the center of the mass touched flame, there would be an inferno. She had to spend energy during the storms of late to keep lightning from lighting these fires and consuming all that she had worked for for so long. So, that irritation dealt with, she turned her attention to the gathering warbands. She rode the perceptions of flying insects and saw that they were accumulating, saw that the force was nearly ready. She turned back to the softling called Frick. Your master failed us, she said in trade. What do you want with us? Frick nodded and smiled and laughed. <laughs> what everyone wants, I suppose. <laughs> Power, <laughs> happiness, <laughs> fuzzy bunnies. <laughs> but I don't suppose you can give me that, can you, Missy? <laughs> no. So, barring that, I want something far, far easier to do with all this. I want me revenge, I do. Revenge, is it? On them that killed your master? That is in keeping with our plans. Oh, I miss. That is what Frick wants. Frick misses Master Jack. He was a right nasty bastard, he was. But he was ours. And it would be so sweet to crunch the bones of them that did the killing. Uli nodded. Are you willing to suffer, to gain the revenge you seek, soft one? There's nothing that happens without price, here in the swamp. I don't got nothing but my own two hands, Missy, but what I have, <laughs> you can have. It's a fair bit late to be taken up doily knitting as it is. Indeed, as you say. Very well. Your acceptance is noted. Will you lead the ones I have gathered to join the fight? Will you be the harbinger of doom for the soft ones? Oh, I, that harbinger thingy, sounds just like what I be thinking, your magicry. Very well, then. As you wish, so shall you have, soft one. Raise your arms for me. Like this, Missy? What are you going to do? Uline smiled her tombstone smile. You will soon know, soft one. Prepare to be reborn. She brought up the reins of power, invisible, in her taloned hand. She held them and whispered to them inwardly, knowing that they would bend to her command. The power rose up in response, and she pictured in her mind what she wanted it to do. The swamp balked some, 
daring to bargain with her. It wanted a life for this, a life such as one she had not given it for some time. Laughing aloud, her mouth gaping open in triumph, she acquiesced to the request. She would have no need for the soft one after this. She had not promised him safe passage. There was a certain beauty in the bargain, and so Uline made it. The swamp surged around her as it bent to embrace her champion. Frick felt himself sink into the bog and suddenly realized he'd made a terrible, awful mistake. The water flooded all around him, and the tendrils of weeds on the bottom of the bog laced themselves with steel strength around his ankles. His arms were similarly held. He held on to his breath, even though it burned his lungs, hoping that he could somehow survive this. But then he realized that there were things in the water. Small eels swam around him, caressing his body with their slime-covered skins. He struggled to break free, and as he did, the eels just got more interested. They bit small chunks out of his skin, and the blood in the water fed their frenzy. Soon his back, his chest, his arms, his legs were all a mass of tiny, circular eel bites, bleeding freely into the dark brown, tea-colored water. Then suddenly the eel swam away, and his eyes opened to the feeling of a wash of pressure in the water. He felt the presence of the swamp witch there in the bog with him. She was naked. She swam to him, wrapped one leg around him like a lover. Her breasts pressed against his bleeding chest, and the pain from a thousand bites screamed through his system. She brought his mouth to hers, was she going to give him air with her mouth? What was she going to do? Was she going to kiss him? Hands as strong as vices wrapped around his neck and tilted his head back. An obscenely long tongue penetrated his lips, pushed past his teeth and into his throat. She held on to him as if she were giving him a sweet marriage kiss as if he were the love of her life, the sweetest love ever. And then her tongue emerged so fast that he swallowed water and fell to coughing. The coughing just sent more water into him. The burning of his lungs began to cease as the world closed down around him. He had been such a sucker. He was dying, played for a fool by this woman. It was a damn good show. Jack wasn't here to see this, he thought. And then she opened his throat again. The last thing he felt consciously was the feeling of a bulging jelly sack of transparent eggs being pushed down his gullet to lodge halfway down his esophagus in his chest. And then there was a blackness for a moment as the last air was spent from his lungs, and he hung motionless. But he did not die, and he did not lose consciousness. 
he felt the stirrings of something inside of him. The middle of his chest swarmed with living things, tiny diggers and biters and burrowers, themselves pregnant with mites that swam his blood. His heart still beat, and would keep beating, he realized, as the creatures did something to him. A small beetle-shaped creature burrowed directly into his heart and began to force it back to life. His lungs filled with gnats. He felt the flood of life within him, soaking up the hateful acid of his stomach and feasting on the fat of his belly. He felt the mites and the larvae burrowing through his flesh from within, eating out weakness, replacing it with corded strength. He opened his mouth to scream, and a cloud of his children boiled outward to swarm his body to finish removing that which was soft and corrupt. Others of his children feasted on his eye orbs and inserted themselves into the place that was left. Soon the pain fell away, the uncomfortable feeling died, the terror of it failed, and suddenly he realized that he could feel all of life around him. He could feel the strength of the swamp in his very veins. He was connected to all the creatures here, suffused with them. His arms, his body was growing huge as his children did their work. One word thrummed through him, a word he did not understand, a word that burned through his very being. That word was Kaun. 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 Champion. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Coronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling a Leiden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast. And Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons Attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use. License 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.